Welcome back, everybody. We are on episode nine of In the Weeds with the man, David Perloff. First and foremost, thank you for making time to be on here. I know we've been working on this for about a month or two, coordinating schedules. So thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Psyched to be uh, here. Definitely. I've, I've, I've known David for, shoot, it's been a few years now. Um, our companies have done uh, quite a bit of work together in the patch, with them, in where, which I'm sure we'll touch on here and there. Um, but I definitely wanted to get uh, a side of David out uh, in front of the camera and our audience that people might not have seen. You have a, a stacked resume and career and, and very well known in San Diego, especially in what we do. Um, but I wanted to take it back to uh, uh, your Philadelphia days, which I didn't know was was originally your hometown. Um, I did a little intel on on the growing up and 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 pre San Diego days, and, and definitely thought a good a good starting point was going back to Philly. Yeah, and uh, talking about the days there, and and I guess how you you found your way out to San Diego. Um, so yeah, man. Yeah, I I, I grew up in Philly. Um, my whole family's still there. They're in New York and Boston. So <clears throat> excuse me, I'm back there every Thanksgiving for a week or so, and they come out and visit. Um, but yeah, I was there through high school. Uh, I went to college in Michigan, and then came here after University of Michigan. Right? Yeah, University of Michigan. Nice. My my stepmother, uh, who my dad in philadelphia but she's from escondido um so when i was eight i went to their wedding um and used to visit my step-grandparents all the time and some you know christmas time Mm. and then when i was finishing school in michigan i didn't have a job so i could either stay there which wasn't didn't feel like an option definitely didn't want to go back to philadelphia uh so i just drove over here and thought it'd be a temporary stay and now it's been uh way more than half my life that i've been here do people tell you you have a philly accent or no or did you ever? Uh, I never. I never really that. had a Philadelphia accent. There are there are some pretty thick ones. I'm not real good at mimicking, but you know, one stand. They say water instead of water, and I never mm-hmm. really perceived myself as having stopped saying that. But now when I go home, they make fun of me. Like, what's water? Mm-hmm. Ooh, water? <laughs> like, what the, you know, what the fuck is water? What are you talking about? So, um, but no, you know, I, I I feel like I miss city life sometimes. But then I go back and visit there and. It takes me a few days to stop missing it and can't wait to be back here. Well, you, you grew up pr- like close to the city, city life, um, young, right? Yeah, I was right. Uh, we lived right next to the city, uh, maybe the equivalent like of Mission Hills, but not really fancy like that, but that proximity to downtown. Um, and it was definitely a different era. I mean, my, my mom worked in the city and my brother and I would jump on a train. Um, I won't say the price of the rides back then because I know what it was. I, you know, it's under a dollar. Sound like my grandfather, but but when I was like seven and he was nine, we'd just get on the train and go downtown and get off, and it was fine. Uh, we never never were scared. I mean, some weird things happened along the way, but you know, I would never put my seven year old on a train without sure. me. No, maybe not even with me. I'm not sure. You know, <laughs> a little more overprotective than my parents were. Yeah, I mean, you're familiar with Michigan, though. There's not much to to stick around. Uh, stick around for after college yeah i mean um it was this kind of small town ann arbor mm-hmm. i had friends moving to chicago who had either originated from there or found jobs there and i just um i just felt like i needed to you know i need to go do something somewhere had you, had you been to san diego i had yet? been here a lot i had been here a bunch okay. of time but only as a kid so i visited you know i was here like i said for my uh, my dad and my stepmom's wedding when i was eight and i used to come okay. summertime but that was mostly in escondido i got you um and now it's funny, you know, just however, 30 years later, 40, God, um, <laughs> I live two exits south of there. 
No way. Uh, which is just crazy small world story. But um, two exits circle. south of where that wedding. Two exits south of where that wedding. I was. grew up in Escondido. I don't, I don't know what it is about Escondido, Escondido in particular that would make you want to move out here. Even I go back now. I used to think it was so cool when I was younger, but I go back now. I'm like, oh man, what, what was I doing here for so long? I'm not sure I ever thought Escondido was cool per se, but uh, Michigan was cold. I graduated in December about half a year later than I thought I would, and I was delivering pizzas and cheesesteaks uh, on a scooter in the snow with a parka <laughs> I like to hear and then goggles and delivering pizzas. Uh, the team at the time was the Fab Five back in Michigan. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. You know, they ended up, like, the next year they were making 12 to $20 million each, but I was delivering pizza for exact change in the snow on a scooter. So I think that's when he was like, I'll go just go west, south and west. <laughs> What did you study at uh, at Michigan? I was journalism and creative writing, which was, you know, it seems sort of intentional considering what my career ended up being for the most part, but it was really a way to sort of a solution for the fact that my pre-med track just didn't work out for me. Oh, you were were planning on going to Michigan? I thought my father was a surgeon, my brother is. I thought I was headed that way, and then I had difficulty exposing myself to the material. Mm-hmm. Mostly, it's not that I couldn't understand it, or else I'm not sure, because I never really looked at it. Mm-hmm. So I was just sort of partying in the beginning years of school, <laughs> and uh, I got really good at that, but not so good at studying. <laughs> so writing and journalism were a way for me to do some work without having to do, I guess, you know, look, looking back at it, a surgeon might have been the way to go. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's good. I'm, but I'm your mom ha- was a writer, right? My mom, yeah, my mom's done PR writing and editing her whole life. Okay, so do you think that was passed a, a little bit along? Or you saw a little of that? I think you know, um, she still edits. You know, when I write things, I still send them to her first mm-hmm. to edit them. Um, I respect her, you know, sort of admire her capabilities, and I think some of her humor and uh, you know her, the way that she writes, I guess, was passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm not. Was it, was there like a specific point? Or a pinpoint that you you realized the, the pre med route is not for me. I think it was that first biology test. I mean, I, <laughs> like I said, I was an awful student. It basically my first two years didn't add up to much uh, mm-hmm. of anything really, except just some money that my parents had spent. So mm-hmm. um, I just you know failure. Of, I was that was just sort of a failure on my part. <laughs> I mean, that, that a, was the choice. You know, it's a lofty goal. Yeah, a, um, you know, I just had to go to class. Yeah, and then you know, you take one. Surgeons ultimately started out as you know college students, so they just had to go to the class and you know to take another one. But I just wasn't my strong suit at the time. Gotcha. So when you you packed up your car, headed west, came to San Diego. What was day one coming out here for you? Uh, I guess how'd you get your your start? Your I always tell people. Um, the first year, arguably t- second year of moving to San Diego for people I've seen, I've been here 10 years now, are the hardest because making that switch out of vacation mode is really difficult. And I, I grew up visiting here because I lived in Arizona. So this was always the escape from the heat, escape from there. And this is our vacation spot. And I don't know if it was, it was hard, but it, it was a, you know, switching the mindset of shit because I was living five blocks from the beach, going to the beach probably five days a week. Um, almost still had that vacation routine and snapping out of that and realizing, no, I want to make a long-term stay out of this. Did you have the same, like when you got here, I, I think you told me you, you moved over by the beach too, right? You'd- yeah. Well, I, I first, I moved in for just for a couple of weeks with my, my godfather, my dad's best friend lived in Carlsbad. Okay. 
so I stayed with him, uh, f- picked up the reader, found a roommate in the reader. And this is a quick funny story. Is I, I, you know, I didn't know anybody, but I knew I wanted to be near Pacific Beach. Someone told me I should do that. So I, you know, I read about this apartment that was available, read about the guy, seemed, seemed like a reasonable guy. And I went and met him and he was wearing a tank top and was pretty muscular. I'm like, oh, you know, even if he's not a perfect fit for me, he's, he's, he's in good shape. And that turned out to be because he did so much meth. <laughs> and, he, and he was ripped and he worked out. So he was pretty, pretty much meth and protein and workouts was his whole world. So that, um, that was an interesting. The old PB days. <laughs> That's a hell of a regimen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really ripped though. So you, you moved in with him? Uh, well, I moved in and then I found out, you know, about the meth part. Um, oh. he, he sort of kept it into his room for the most part, which is fine. But so I don't know exactly what I had anticipated doing here. Um, I got my first job. I was here for a few weeks. I started writing high school sports stories for the La Jolla Light mm. newspaper. It was a weekly paper. And I would mm-hmm. just go to these high school lacrosse and whatever, you know, basketball games and write about them. Um, and then I'd been here about six weeks. And my dad, who was 52, died suddenly. Um, he was jogging in Philadelphia. He was jogging oh, wow. and his heart stopped. And all of a sudden, you know, everything changed. He was, um, I don't know if we were a lot alike. I was a kid and he was an adult, but he, I sort of identified myself with him. Mm-hmm. I'd li- lived with him right before moving out here for a few years. I'd lived with him for a few years before moving out here. Um, so it was pretty shocking. I didn't have any income and he, he had sort of, he had supported me. And then all of a sudden that stopped. And it, it was just sort of a, a, a shock mm-hmm. um, where I had no income and no money. And all of a sudden I had to like borrow money from the godfather I had mentioned who I moved mm-hmm. in with. Um, and anyway, it took some time <clears throat> to sort of get back on my feet. I did, um, I worked for Spike and Mike's Festival of Animation, which is sort of animation production company that oh, cool. showed um, animated films around the country and also in La Jolla at the museum. So I wrote press releases for them for a short time. Um, and during that process, we had a promotion with a local radio station at the La Jolla Theater. I met a person in promotions there. And then a few months later, I was an intern there and got a job selling radio. Oh, no way. So that was how it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a planned uh, move into advertising or sales or media. Mm-hmm. I needed money. I needed something other than writing press releases for this you know, I think it was five or six dollars an hour, um, and anyway, that turned into a seven-year radio sales job that went pretty well. So when you when you went to intern, you were still writing for Spike and Mike's. Uh, yes, for a short time, uh, okay. uh, maybe I'm, I don't really remember exactly. Maybe for a few months, and then the intern. So I was an intern for maybe three to six months, mm-hmm. um, and then they offered. It's funny, I guess. Full circle here is that. Um, they offered me a job and I was going to make a couple grand a month, not as a salary, but they gave me two accounts, which was PB Bar and Grill and then Emerald City or Johnny V. So really it was one, it's one family. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And then for the next 15 years, that was a client of mine. I helped them initially just, you know, sort of buy their radio campaigns. And then when I left radio and started an agency, they were the client that enabled me to leave. So I did their media planning and buying, which... Oh, wow. It's just how I got started in all of that. Then we added Margarita Rocks and Blue Tattoo and all those. You know? Yeah, wow. So when you when you took the internship, was the internship in was it writing by nature? Or you, no, it was in advertisement. Yeah, the write the writing thing didn't really reappear until much later in my life. I guess um, the intern was you know duct taping wires at events like the Del Mar Fair and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, 
I did end up actually writing some commercials, some of the 30 and 60 second commercials for the clients. Oh, that's cool. Um, and I enjoyed that. I, it seemed that I was doing better at that than the people that they had on staff to do it. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And then I think that's how I managed to uh, create relationships with the clients because I was able to sort of ascertain what their needs and hopes were and express that through writing. Mm. Uh, and then ultimately their radio commercials. So, And you cool. found a pretty good... Uh, pretty good knack for advertisement sales right i know you, you your career kind of took off there and you you made a name for yourself at, at least at the station um in that position right yeah uh you know there was a few people we had seven or eight salespeople, but i definitely um i guess sort of rose to the top of that group mm-hmm. pretty quickly I, it's funny even today so to say that i'm in sales feels uh, it's just a word i haven't loved a lot um Ultimately, the reason I succeeded in radio or whatever the advertising medium was, was trying to understand first just what the client was trying to accomplish. And I felt like I have a, a knack for that. Mm. It's talking with people, figuring out what they need that maybe they hadn't even thought of. Usually, um, I find when talking to businesses, what they think they need maybe really isn't what they right. need. And there turns out to be some other problem. Um, and I, I enjoy trying to get to the bottom of that and then being able to express it. Mm. through words and pictures in a way that you know manifests their goals definitely is is the radio station still on the air still yeah it was well not as that it was 92.5 the flash and now it's magic 92.5 is that uh is that with iHeartMedia? i think it's uh 91xz90 and magic are together as pca radio but those names change with some frequency that's interesting. And you stayed with them in radio for, for a few years? I was there from about 94 to 99. Okay. Well, actually, uh, so I went back to Philadelphia. I was here for about five years, mm-hmm. seeing my grandparents once a year, and they were in their 80s, and it just felt strange to me. I was like, what am I see these guys seven more times or something, and that's it? Mm-hmm. So I, um, at that time, I had bought a house, and I, I put it up for sale, and I was like, I'm just going to go back. Bought to a house here? Yeah, in okay. 97 I did. Um, and so I went, I went back thinking, oh, maybe I'll just go back for a while. Five years, I don't know, at least until my grandparents weren't alive. And I was there for about six months. and like, this is awful. And I had to leave. But, <laughs> but it was a pretty cool six months. I, I worked at um, CBS Radio and was selling you know, live reads on the Howard Stern Show in oh. New York, Philadelphia, and D.C. And they just, you know, they were super expensive and it, they CBS radio back then, uh, or CBS Viacom, whatever it was, they paid 20% commission on everything. So it was just, it was a great year. Wow. I made double what I had here and just couldn't wait to leave that. I hated it. Um, and then I moved back. Luckily no one bought my house. So I moved back <laughs> into that, uh, and stayed there for the subsequent like 15 years. So it all worked out great. Did you ever meet Howard? No, I met, uh, Gary Delabate, which is, I don't know, Horse Tooth Jackass, any yeah. other guys? Oh. <laughs> uh, ja- Jackie the Joke Man, Mart Link, some of, some of his sidekicks, not Howard. Gotcha. So then you came back here six months later and you... It worked out to be almost a year. I mean, it took okay. me a little while to get back. Six months, I started playing to get back. Um, and I worked at 91X when I came back. Oh, nice. So you jumped right back in the radio yeah. doing, doing same job. sales? Yeah, same job. And I was there for about um, a year. And just uh, over the course of... You know, having gone back to Philadelphia and making more money and figuring out more things about, I guess, being a professional worker in the world, mm-hmm. um, I saw that I probably didn't need to be at the radio station to make the same amount of money or more. Mm. 
Uh, and that was really my focus. I mean, talk about money a lot. But at one point, I, I ran out. I had nothing at about 22. And it's not, you know, I had a nice background. Some money ultimately came to me from my father's passing, but it took some time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just was so focused on, I, I need rent money or I need this. And anyway, so I left um, the radio job. And like I said, I had PB Bar and Grill. Then maybe it was Johnny V or Emerald City, mm-hmm. Margarita Rocks. Uh, and it sort of grew from there. At one point, I think I had seven or eight bars and restaurants I was doing radio, TV, and outdoor for. And this uh, was at your own agency? Yeah. Yep. And that was when, shoot, I wasn't here at all. You were probably like time. 12. <laughs> yeah, but I, I never saw PB. I've only heard stories of PB like pre. Now it's just obviously rows and rows and rows of bars and restaurants right. and tattoo shops. I literally partied and probably blacked out at every single spot. You just <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I was going to bring that up, PB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but um, what was that process like for you, you know, having a, a great sales job and all of a sudden, you know, making that leap to start your own um, your own agency? Well, so I, these really, a lot of it had to do with this woman, Donna Edwards, who owned those bars and her family, mm-hmm. Mike. Lee, Roger Lee, and Marsha, their sister. I mean, yeah. And I felt like that was my second family. And they, you know, they knew I was going to leave my job and sort of promised that they would support me and help me and because we had spent years together. Um, but I guess I felt confident doing it because I was helping them not only with their radio that, where I worked, but writing their scripts for their other stations, helping them with the layout for their reader ads um, and that sort of thing. So I knew, you know, they were spending money elsewhere, and I helped guide that, but didn't really benefit from it or participate in it right. directly. So um, s- instead of just representing their budget at the one station I worked at, I was able to go uh, and help them spend their money across all platforms. Or, well, all platforms at the time were you know, radio, TV, <laughs> outdoor, newspaper. Um, so, And then it just sort of grew. I mean, I, it's funny, my first... Um, sales manager at the flash or actually it was the same guy i worked for at 91x later uh, but he said to me i can tell that you're you know you're going to work hard and you seem sort of stressed and you want to absolutely do your best all the time which is great but i encourage you to you know try to find a sense of calm and look around the room and realize that you don't really have to do your best you just have to do better than better than all these people right. <laughs> and that may and that may be easier and um so i i, I I think I've always put a lot of pressure on myself to perform, but um, just realizing that, you know, if you work hard and focused on something, maybe the result you get uh, is good enough and trying to, you know, it's always been a struggle for me not to strive for perfection because Uh often I can make something perfect and then realize later it wasn't. So Mm -hmm. why, you know, why I've struggled so much for that. Does that come from like, you know, early on as a kid or as a, you know, student in high school, like your parents, like that pressure was that pressure applied from them or is that just yourself just always trying to be better than what you know i'm not sure if it was dna or you know i um I, so i attribute it to two things and i'm not mm-hmm. really sure one is my dad was always the surgeon right he was all he was you know he did kidney and liver and pancreas transplants and he was just wow. he was like this big you know he was the god of certainly our uh, you know the god the king of our house and mm-hmm. He and my when he and my mom split, it just I don't know. I always looked up to him, and I felt like I knew he loved me, but I wasn't sure he. I felt like there was always this expectation that I would do something great. Uh, and I went to this nice, you know, private school from K to twelve, and 
early on, before, instead of giving grades, they gave comments. And the comments always, for me, always were, you know, David's smart and outgoing, but he's not living up to his potential. And what that means for a fucking six-year-old, I have no idea. You know? <laughs> it's like, what should I be doing that I'm not? But it just sort of stuck with me that, oh, yeah, I could be doing more. I could be doing more. So I don't know. I think it's that mixed with just being sort of generally neurotic, I guess. I, I'm not really sure. But one of the things that, you know, when I walked in, Peter said, um, I look calm or relaxed or, or refreshed. And I think uh, there's some of that. I sort of let go of some of that. I'm trying to realize that, you know, there's a lot of things I want to accomplish in life outside of my work. And if I try to be perfect there, for sure, something else is going to be lacking. So that must have been really, really tough when you came to that realization that the medical field wasn't really going to work out for you, you know, during college. I think I was probably too high to really get this work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I remember when I, I got this job at the um, La Jolla Light. Uh -huh. I had been here a few weeks literally a few weeks and I, I was so proud I got this job and I called my dad and said, Hey, I got a job writing high school sports stories for this newspaper. I was, you know, I'd studied journalism. It was all adding up. He said, well, what do you get paid? And I said, it's $50 per article. He said, well, how many are you going to write? I, said, I don't know. They started with, started me at two a week. He said, well, that's not going to pay your rent. And I remember thinking, well, that's sort of a dick thing to say. You know? <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was true, but yeah. that was, and then he died like three weeks later. So I never got a chance to make him proud. I'm not sure if that was what I what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure. You know, I never felt that badly at the time, but I, I'm just eliminate the science from my life and go to this easier track. Mm -hmm. um, but looking back at, you know, if I could have college back, I definitely would have done it differently. Yeah, it's mixed in some studying between the weed. That's going to be tough, especially when you come from a, a family with such a dialed-in profession in, in, in medical. Is anything outside of that? Because you said your brother ended up becoming a yeah, but not so. You know, he he, he was always sort of in the science and I guess uh, medicine mm -hmm. trajectory, but you know, not until way after my dad died did he get even get into medical school. Oh, okay, um, so it wasn't like. No one ever expected me to be a doctor. I probably said it. Anyway, I look back on some of the drawings I have from when I was a kid. It's, you know, I drew myself as a doctor and that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. um, But I think, you know, my, so I have a seven-year-old boy now. And my wife asked him the other day, well, what do you want to do in life professionally? Or, you know, what do you mm -hmm. want to do for a job? He said, I want to do advertising. <laughs> and like, so funny. I think, people, you know, what is it? You yeah. know, uh, I think that you look up to your father and so if you're lucky. Yeah. And um, I did, and I think that was just where I thought I was headed. When I was um, maybe eight years old, I scrubbed in for a, a kidney transplant. I didn't, I wasn't, I mean, this is, again, i reluctant to say, but it was in the 70s, mm -hmm. and there just wasn't this sort of insurance and certainly no video cameras around. But my, So I was scrubbed in like a surgeon with full suit on. My dad was doing the surgery, and I was holding this, it's called a clamp, but I was holding this thing holding the guy's body open Holy shit! and if i had let go nothing would have happened uh at one point i stepped back into some sort of slop bucket of something which is awful and, but anyway <laughs> so it was just a, you know i was just exposed to it yeah yeah it wasn't even this aspirational thing like you know someday i'm going to be a doctor it's more just you know i used to go watch him work on rats in the lab and then humans and Say, oh yeah, this is you know this is what people do. It's probably the same reason that your son's saying that. He's, yeah, he's exposed to it. Hears you talking about it. Right. You bring it home. 
you leave with it to work each day. Exactly. Um, I just didn't know if it's one of those things because it is such a dialed in profession. If if growing up, if you feel like if you go anything anywhere outside of that box, that it feels like a, almost taboo. Like I, you know, I need to stay in the medical field, and maybe it, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I, I never I never had that mm-hmm. so much. Um, the thing that really struck me and um, is I, I I was brought up I guess privileged. You know, I never had to worry about money or food or it's just never even thought about it. I went to a nice private school, like I said, and then all of a sudden. And all through college, you know, when I basically had accomplished nothing in my first couple of years of school, mm-hmm. dad still paid for it. Mm-hmm. And then when I got, got here, all of a sudden that just changed. And it changed, you know, my focus wasn't what am I going to do professionally, but just what am I going to do for money? Right. Um, what, what, was the, what, did, what was the biggest change in yourself when you came back that second time? That's a good question. I don't I have to think on that one. Ask me something else. I'm not sure. Yeah, be, I, I've actually had a, a good a good buddy of mine did almost the identical thing. It wasn't six months or a year; it was six weeks. And uh, he moved back. He was from East Coast uh, Buffalo in New York, and came right back. and And I think it was almost like a it was a refresher, but it was also you you almost keep it as the safety net as I can always go back. And that was like the fallback. But then he realized when he got back to his fallback because he definitely put himself in a position here where um, he wasn't working a ton um, and it's not cheap to live here and slowly but surely watched the bank account dwindle down to nothing and then and then leaned on the fallback and got back to fallback and was like holy shit i this is a, a quick reminder why i moved out west and it was six weeks and came right back and kind of couch surfed and um, i think had a different look on i'm not i'm not doing the fallback anymore this is what i'm doing and came with a new work ethic new outlook um everything here and has, and has been here ever since so I don't know if there's if there's a similar. Um, I mean, obviously, you had a, a, a house you bought here. You had a lot of uh, roots planted here. If it was a hey, this is where I'm 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 staying. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it was when I came back. I realized mm-hmm. this felt more like home mm-hmm. than Philadelphia did because I, you know, I got I used to live at my parents' house. Then all of a sudden, I'm in I'm downtown in an apartment, and it's cold and rainy, and it was like summertime, and I was going to the beach in New Jersey. And thinking, I should. Why am I not in PB right now, mm-hmm. or, or anywhere else other than New Jersey? You know, mm-hmm. um, and I it just, you know, it felt more like home here. And I was, um, I felt like the things that I had accomplished here, I finally realized were were not insignificant, and there was something to come back to, mm-hmm. not just the house that I had, but you know, people that I knew and business connections that I had made. And you know, like like I said, I was there for, at ninety one X for about a year before I was able to go off on my own and do my own thing. So okay. it just felt more like home. I feel like San Diego is a hard city to to get that, like, uh, unless you grew up here and you have family here, it's hard to get that, like, family feeling because there's so many people from all over. It's, I mean, we always say it's a melting pot of people, and there's always turnover of people. They're, they're in and out for that reason. You know, it's expensive. They might not take it serious. Whatever the reason that it's almost hard to, like, build that, hey, this is, family and especially in your case you have all your family back on the east coast yeah. so and i know now you have a you know you have the wife a kid the whole night it's got to feel like home and family now but i feel like it's a tough city to to create that yeah some of my oldest i, I have some friends from um elementary school still that i that i'm in touch with but some of my oldest friends are the ones that i used to sell radio with here hmm. so that's pretty cool i was i think i was young enough when i got here and that was so long ago now that it feels like, you know, I grew up with these people. I mean, I did. Yeah, I know. Step. That's cool. 
So, so then talk about the how you started scaling and growing the agency. So you're out of radio, and now how the agency went. Um, so I, like I said, uh, PB Bar and Grill, Johnny V, and Margarita Rocks was sort of the beginning. First um, accounts. Yeah, and you know it's been a while actually. I'm have to think about who some of the other ones, <laughs> who some of the other ones even were. Um, were you, would you were you labeled as a advertising agency, marketing agency, both all of the above? Um, as as far as what you were soliciting to, so I guess clients. that might be a glorification of what I did. To be fair, so I I left in '99, end of '99, I left radio mm-hmm. in December, uh, and then one night, at, you know, just how my life is so tied to hospitality in this town, uh, Rich's nightclub in Hillcrest used to have hedonism on mm-hmm. Thursday nights, and um, I was there. Uh, my roommate was gay, so we would go on Thursday nights, which was like mixed nights, and there was fewer straight women i mean there was sort of a mix but there was mm-hmm. more many straight guys there mm-hmm. uh, anyway i ended up meeting my wife there and she's from brazil at riches at riches which oh, is sort of sort of rare that's I think. so random <clears throat> we joke i mean i checked to uh make sure that she was indeed female because i had been <laughs> almost fooled in the past uh, and then she said she thought I was gay for the first six years of our marriage. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we met there in 99 and then she's from Brazil. And then we were for the next five years, while I guess I could have been building an agency into more, um, I was, you know, traveling to Brazil and hanging out and, you know, falling in love and just it, um, fo- focus on my career had it wasn't the primary focus. Mm-hmm. So she was still, she was living in Brazil? She moved here to learn English and stayed. We met, uh, we met while she was here visiting and then she ended up just staying. Uh, did you, do you speak, isn't it Portuguese? Portuguese. Do you speak Portuguese? Uh, my a little bit. Oh. About maybe a third of it. Oh, interesting. I know when people are talking about me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, that's cool. So then when you, you, you pursued that and her and obviously built what you have now with, with her, um, how did the, how did you kind of jump back into really growing the, the agency or eventually the, the magazine? Let me think about that. I should have prepared a little further to get some of my <laughs> stories straight here. Um, it's always back. Uh, before I come up with that answer, I'll, I'll say one thing that happened, which is pretty cool is that, um, we were, we, uh, we had a casting call for MTV, um, fear factor at Margarita rocks one time that I coordinated it with MTV and some local radio stations and, there's this big casting call and they're trying to find people to be on um, fear factor couples. And so all these, you know, I was, I was like, I think 30 or so, 31 or two at the time. And we had all these, you know, 21 to 24 year olds coming out with their boyfriends and girlfriends to try to be on fear factor couples. And at the end, they basically picked my wife and me <laughs> in that order. Um, <laughs> and they said, Oh, you guys did great. Come to this hotel tomorrow and you'll meet one of the producers. And, uh, and we did, and they, you know, we had an interview there, sort of like the setup. Hmm. And they said, "Oh, you guys would be perfect. You know, she's pretty. You're funny. You know, this <laughs> this, this could work out well." So they said, "You know, come next week to LA and meet these other producers." So we met them, and they're like, "Holy shit! This is this is." We felt like we were being groomed for stardom. Yeah. I always felt like, you know, obviously I should be on TV for something. Uh-huh. My wife's hot. Like she'll, you know, whatever. This is exactly what we needed to be. We're about to be famous, and then. You know, we ended up being on Couples Fear Factor, this series of seven shows. And I felt, um, I think I was, felt like I was poised for fame right until my, I was looking into this giant bowl of earthworms and worm shit 
that I had to move with my mouth from this big bowl to this other location that had my wife's head sticking through a hole in the table. And uh, I felt really unfamous at that. I slapped my face into a bowl of worms and then not famous. Was that when Rogan was the... Yeah. So met Joe, all of that. Met Joe Rogan. Like, (laughs) wow, this is great. I'm going to have my own TV show here. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it takes. But um, so, you know... Actually, that is that that worked. So I remember sort of how where I went. So the agency. Is there still footage of that? Of the it's episode? on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like everybody listening or watching is about to click off from this and go look for that. <laughs> no, we're gonna edit that into yeah. this episode <laughs> somehow. I, I have it. Actually, I have the links I, up here. You asked for some high res photos. I was gonna take a screenshot of the TV because that's worm. for certain. No, I don't look so good there. But there's one shot in the in the bumper for the show, where I you know for sure I looked my best. They when we found out we were gonna be on the show, we had six weeks to prepare. So. You know, I started losing weight, working out, bleached my teeth, get a bunch of tans. And uh, when you see me on the show, it's like, you know, blue steel. We arrive and the producer said, whoa, Perloffs are so tan. <laughs> I think it was just the contrast to the teeth at the time. To the, um, and you, got, you were married. Uh, yeah, we got married in uh, like 2001. And this was around 2004, I think. Okay. I didn't mean to. I, I, no, I just took good. you off off track there. You said you were about you kind of. Yeah, so up it, it was. Um, it was funny that how much Margarita Rocks turned out to be influential in my life. So anyway, that thing happened. I didn't. We didn't get famous um, at all from that. But the guy who owned uh, Margarita Rocks said, "Why don't you, why don't you just do a magazine?" I was on the board of Discover Pacific Beach. It's one of the San Diego's business improvement districts, and he said, "Why don't you start a magazine here?" I said, well, I don't know. Nah, I never started a magazine. How do you do that? I said, I don't know. Just, I don't want you to do it. So I had this concept that uh, since I was on a board of this organization that represented 1,200 businesses around the beach area, if I could just get 5% of them to advertise in this magazine, by my math, that would have been plenty. Mm-hmm. And it turned out none of them, none of them did. So I, <laughs> so I started Pacific Beach Magazine. That's what it was started in 2007. Um, so what happened between... 2000 and 2006 or so when I started the magazine was just more nightclubs and restaurants and uh, a couple of surgeons and some real estate people that I was doing media planning and buying and creative for, but it it felt pretty narrow and small. And um, I made pretty good money doing it, but it just didn't, you know, I didn't have big staff. Um, I was mostly hiring contractors to do the work I didn't know how to do. Um, And then all of a sudden, the magazine was supposed to be this sort of side project that I figured out how to make. You know, actually, I had this plan that I, I wrote, never written a business plan prior to that, but we were going to make six grand the first month and then eight, and, uh, you know, sure, add about yeah. two grand a month up to about 20. And it took us a year to get the first issue out, but we made six grand on the first issue. I'm like, holy shit, this is, this is perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think the next month I made five and then four, and like, wow, this is just not what the plan was. <laughs> and, um, so all of a sudden, it became what was to be a side project that, you know, I, I had worked with beverage and hospitality companies, selling them radio, uh, planning some media for them, arranging for their products, to be, the beverages to be sold through the hospitality accounts and mm-hmm. targeting the consumers who wanted the beers and the liquor and the, hosp- you know, and the club. So it was a cycle that I, I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to articulate that, but, or at least I didn't do it well there. Uh, but then all of a sudden, so we started the magazine and it just, 
it sort of flowed pretty well. Budweiser had been a client of mine on the radio, and they agreed to support the magazine by advertising in it. And it, I, I guess I felt initially where they were doing it as a favor to me, but really, this magazine we created was was effective for the beverage companies, the hospitality companies, and sure. the consumers. Yeah, there hadn't been something like that. Mm-hmm. One day, Pacific Beach Magazine didn't exist, and the next day, we had mailed it to every single address in PB and Mission. And then every, you know, that was our target. And and the sales pitch was, do you want to reach people, or do you reach every reach people at the beach? And if they said no, they said, well, great, this is now you can. And mm. if, I said, do you target people at the beach? And they said yes. I said, well, great, now you reach all of them. So we couldn't really. Um, it seemed like a win, and it just uh, we worked hard. And this is where I was talking about being, you know, perfectionist. Is I was the editor and the publisher, and I just I couldn't let a sentence go out into public if it wasn't cool or it wasn't fun or it wasn't engaging. And I figured if this is some free thing that's coming into your mailbox and you're going to do us the favor of picking it up and looking at it, then even the captions under the photos have to be well thought out or just, you know, you, it can't be otherwise. And looking, you know, I realize it could have been otherwise. I, I might still have that business today if I had done it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, so the guy from Margarita Rocks is the one who ultimately propelled me into starting this magazine, which was a side project, and then became, you know, a few months after it was Pacific Beach Magazine. We dropped the beach and made it Pacific and spread it around the county and um, worked on it for about eight years mm-hmm. with my wife. She was full-time uh, at the company till our child was born mm-hmm. um, and then sold it to the Union Tribune in 2016. Do you have the first? Do you have the first issue you put out of? Yeah, I have, I have all of them. You do? Yeah. Oh, I would love to yeah, read that. Yeah, it's pretty that. cool. Do you, Do you go back and look at it? <clears throat> I don't now. I mean, that's what I was saying about you know having. I was all, I always sort of strove for per- perfection, but when I look at them now, I'm like, oh, this is awful. It makes mm-hmm. me cringe. So, like, w- the amount of emotional energy I put into, I think it was just ego. Like I wanted to make sure people think people had to think I was smart, otherwise this magazine would have some you know, negative impact on my career. Mm-hmm. My name's on the masthead. I started it. I owned it. I was the publisher. Editor has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't. There wasn't. It just fell. So I, I was working, um, you know, we're talking about when I was in the weeds, I, I worked 78, 80 hours a week for years mm-hmm. and years and years. And I made a magazine that people said it was great and it was great to read. But, it, you know, from a business standpoint, it wasn't so effective. Yeah. And you, you, you kind of maintain that position for a long time though, where you're, you're the owner, you're running the company, but you're also the, the editor. And I mean, you have the, the part of you that wants to oversee every word that goes out. So you were wearing every hat from top to, to bottom, it sounds like, but it wasn't, that wasn't just like getting off the ground first magazine. You did that for a while, right? Yeah. I mean, so I, there were a few things that I was able I, I always wish that I could delegate more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been criticized for not having done that. But I also didn't, in my mind, I didn't have the money or talent around me to know how to do that. Sure. Um, but one, you know, the, the guy who designed the magazine for most of its existence, um, Kenny Boyer, when, as soon as I met him, you know, there was no question. Like that was a hundred, I never designed the magazine, but that was just him. It was perfect. He taught me about what a magazine should be and how it's structured um, and there were occasionally salespeople that I could sort of pass off some responsibility to, but something about the editing, I just, 
you know, I did try and I, I had a reputation for sort of churning through um, editors in, in their minds. In my mind, I didn't. I, I sort of assigned tasks. And if something came back to me, I said, well, I'm, I wouldn't publish this, so I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, so I did end up doing a lot of the work on my own for a long time. And it's an, when I look back on it, I say I regret the sort of perfectionist style, but I think that having had what I considered a good magazine, good to read and look at for so long, maybe did sort of foster my current position, which I'm happy with. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I try not to look back with regret, but definitely don't want to duplicate the same mistakes. So yeah. now as I look to new projects to get involved with, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't ever take on something where I'm doing nine things. Yeah, I yeah. would have eight team members and I maybe do one other thing. Ideally, I would just oversee the team yeah. and, pre- and present and uh, sort of promote the vision mm-hmm. uh, and help in the different departments, but not you know really macro-manage at this point. Definitely. So I don't think I could fall into the same thing because I wouldn't expose myself to it. I, I want time uh, at my house with my family mm-hmm. and things that take away from that, I just avoid. Was there any hesitation or caution on your part um, starting up a magazine in that specific time period? I mean, because at that point, the internet was... It was it was already it had already um, I guess you could say the whole dot com boom was late nineties early two thousands is, is that around that period yeah. so I mean everything was started going digital pretty fast so did you, were you at all hesitant about starting up a magazine when everyone's going digital uh, well when you no I wish <laughs> I, I wish I had been I mean so like I said it wasn't like oh I'm gonna you know magazines are where it's at mm-hmm. for me it was it was more about this sort of direct mail solution, which mm-hmm. I knew I could hit every single person in PB and Mission instantaneously, even if they had never heard of this thing before, if it's in your mailbox mm-hmm. and there's nothing else like it and it's about you and your life and your neighborhood and your friends and you would actually see your friends in it and you could see other local people in it, mm-hmm. um, it was more about the content. So, you know, I have friends who went straight into social media from, and maybe not social, but sort of the beginnings of it. Um, and that would have been a nicer way to go probably, (laughs) but, um, I was really more, less concerned about the platform than the content and the messaging. So when, you know, I guess I'm not sure when the dot-com boom was, but, you know, my first email after college was David at the flash.com. That was the radio station. And, you know, we, when, I guess we started to build an email database pretty early. Um, and then when Facebook popped up, we created a Facebook profile and did a bunch of giveaways there. And so I always had sort of the same methodology and just would adapt it to whatever the new platform was. So by the time, um, I sold the company, we had a website that had like 120, 130,000 visitors a month. We had about 50,000 emails, I think maybe 40 or 50,000 people on Facebook at the time. Um, so I, you know, if I think I, if I had focused more on digital, that might've been more successful. Um, but again, it was really just more about some of the, the content and the, the people that we were talking to. And mm-hmm. we did this thing um, in the magazine, <clears throat> which still exists, by the way, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, called The Blind Date. So we would introduce two strangers and put them on a date and follow them with a the camera for the night. Um, and initially it was just in print. And then later we had, you know, we would take highlights from it and put it on social. And then later we did video and um, it just sort of grew. But the fact that the, 
people talked about the blind date a lot. Even people yeah. who, so I've never heard of Pacific Magazine. And then if they heard about the blind date, they said, oh yeah, I love that. I read that all the time. Hmm. So it was really the content, it felt like transcended the brand itself. Um, so, you know, I, I have friends who left radio at the same time and went into internet related things. And, you know, they have bigger houses and nicer cars. So, <laughs> but maybe I can catch up. I, I feel like, I feel like it, it, you also, though, built Pacific. It was a magazine initially, but it became like more than anything, just a lifestyle brand. I don't think a lot of people, at least I don't say Pacific Magazine. I just say Pacific, you know, Pacific in San Diego, because like you said, you know, you have the blind date concept. You guys are getting into, you throw events, you throw really cool events, like right. big, big events around town that I know leverage and use a lot of the partners or advertisers in the magazine. And you started getting a really good presence on social and on digital. So it was all kind of building this one big ecosystem and lifestyle brand that I, not biased because you're sitting here. It was a really respectable, um, um, well-known brand in San Diego, one of the top, you know, and I know a lot of people come to you guys who might not be advertisers, us, we, us some of the times to, to align on certain events or certain partnerships or stuff we have coming up. Cause we know you guys have, um, a dialed in audience and a strong brand that connects to, um, to San Diego and, and not just the beach anymore. It's the whole County across the County. So I, I feel like if, if you probably did move over into the digital space in the process of creating that, like building that brand. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, as much as uh, I did, I wrote the letter from the editor and <clears throat> wanted everything to be, it, it probably sounded like me. If you would read it and also, and know me, mm-hmm. then you would say, oh, like he obviously wrote that. But um, but it, it didn't feel, for people who didn't know me, it didn't feel like it was about me. Our, our slogan was life's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't, we didn't say we were cool. Uh, we just, you know, the life is cool mm-hmm. and here's cool things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never, we would never say Pacific is cool or our parties are cool. We would say, here's a beautiful venue and the drinks are good, you know. Mm. Um, and so we were able to to uh, propel other brands just by being <clears throat> pure in that sense, I feel like. And making it really, just being very honest. Um, w- you know, we would go to a restaurant, for example, and if they had, um, shitty service, but good food, we'd say it's good for takeout. You know, it was just like a good news magazine. That <laughs> yeah, was our, yeah. that was our vibe uh-huh. and life's cool and you can have a good time anywhere. And that's what it was all about. Uh, and we were able to help, you know, um, when we would talk to advertisers, it wasn't about you should be in Pacific or, you know, you should buy ads here. It was more trying to understand what they needed to accomplish. So I, just as an example, we would talk to, um, a tequila company, Milagro, mm-hmm. I wanted to figure out a way to involve them and their money a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, So rather than saying, you know, you could have the back cover, this and that, we created Margarita Month and arranged for them to have their, basically gave them what they couldn't get on their own and hadn't really even considered, which is, you know, how could they get a drink moved across the bar at 30 venues around the county? Um, And the answer was, we just talked about Margarita Month and how Mm -hmm. fun and cool that could be. We didn't talk about ourselves. It was it was never, I mean, sure, Pacific's logo was in it, but we were always sure. at the bottom. It was Margarita Month brought to you by Pacific. So that was sort of the validating piece of it more than the reason to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was always very important to me that we would never talk, we would never say we. If we talked about Pacific, it was Pacific blank. Sure, it was never, yeah. There was never a we. You're not supposed to imagine people behind the scene, more just life's cool. 
Yeah, I feel like that's a that's an early take on what a lot of brands are doing now is they don't scream in your face, buy, 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 buy my watch, buy my hat, buy this, buy tequila. They create more of a story or an event or something. So you, it's almost taking the back, going around to the back door instead of the front door. Yeah. And that's what you're doing is you're taking them through the back door. And, and I'm sure they got their tequila in what you're saying. Some of your partners or, or venues like bars, restaurants, put them up because it's part of Pacific's uh, month. Um, and then it's a, a win, win, win for the for Milagro without anybody even knowing it. Yeah, one thing that was, I mean, I, I feel like has always been effective for me in, in working with brands is trying to understand what they really want. And mm-hmm. I know I said that before, but I knew for certain it wasn't, for some people they wanted ads in Pacific and that was flattering, but ultimately ineffective. Mm-hmm. They what a, what a tequila company wants to do is sell drinks. And I f- tried to come up with a plan to sell as many possible drinks. And then because that was, you know, whether we succeeded or not, we did, but whether we had or not, uh, the aspiration was to do this thing that would make them successful. And when they saw that and they saw how hard we were willing to work on it, then money wasn't an issue anymore. Whatever Mm -hmm. it cost, they would pay for that Mm -hmm. because no one else could offer them. It was was a way to grow their brand in their key accounts among, you know, the potential buyers, you know, liquor buyers and consumers. Mm. So, you know, that's always been my feeling about selling advertising is nobody really wants ads. Mm-mm. They want the thing that the ad's going to make work. And for the most part, the ads won't make that work. A lot of the selling process that I see among you know advertising salespeople is they finally get someone into their magazine or radio station or app or whatever it is, but then they either, you know, they, they don't know how to empower that brand to create a message that's going to get whatever the desired reaction is definitely they don't even if they did know to think about it which i think often training doesn't involve that it's just go sell this stuff um even if they did know how that would need to be done they wouldn't maybe know how to do it yeah and my focus had always been on you know how do you express these things how you know how do you express the image or the the message would you say looking back on your time from start to finish was that one of the most challenging things or was there was there something that you could you could pinpoint as this is the most challenging part of running, growing, scaling a magazine? I just felt like I never really succeeded at scaling. It got bigger. It made more money. There was more copies. There's more advertisers. But I just never could. You know, looking at it now, I feel like I could start seven magazines mm-hmm. in, in a month. And people come to me for that. You know, I, so I, I feel like I could do that in a second now. I know exactly how to do it. But it took me leaving it and and getting away from it um to have that um i guess that perspective so i never really scaled it in the way i i I couldn't understand why if if it looked better and read better and we had you know we would have photo shoots in that in my mind you know could compete with any of the certainly regional magazines and some of our fashion shoots because i I sort of found a trick for how to get high-end photographers to shoot for us so they would look as good as fashion magazines. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, if I have Budweiser and high-end fashion, all this stuff, why isn't it scaling? And the answer was because of me, because I just didn't know how to do it. And I looked for help. I, I did look for help, and I just couldn't quite find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, like I said, it really took getting away from it to recognize all that I had done wrong there. And that was, that was largely why I did ultimately want, want to get away from it. By the time I left um, or sold it, 
I was working as many hours as I had years prior, and I just couldn't seem to, I couldn't get away from it. Yeah, so I, I definitely don't want to just gloss over that because that was a, a really big deal was the, the Union Tribune. They approached you, or how, how did that shape out? Because they eventually ended up buying the magazine. Um, and I wanted to talk about the transition from from that for you for you personally and for the, the brand. So how did the that first conversation ever come to? I guess the, f- the first time it ever came up is um, Discover SD, which is an online, it was sort of an online entertainment brand. Um, that a guy, I don't know if you know these guys, but Nadav Wilf and Jeff Smith started this, I guess it was sort of pioneer. I mean, it was pioneer. It was this online entertainment brand that was similar to Pacific mm-hmm. in terms of its, um, maybe the advertisers and the audience they were targeting. And the Union Tribune bought that. And I and I was friendly with the guys who ran it. And a, a short while later, they said, why don't, why don't you sell your company to the Union Tribune and we'll all work together? Um, and then I had this business broker that I had met who actually had structured that deal with Discover SD and the Union Tribune who helped me because I wouldn't have known how to do it. Sure, yeah. So he helped me and we got right up to the finish line, it felt like. I mean, literally, uh, it took six months of planning and negotiating and it got all the way to, I bought a suit, got it tailored and was going to sign the contract with Papa Doug Manchester, the billionaire guy who owned the paper at the time. And I I mean, I was going there to sign the deal that we had worked on and I got a call um, on the way over to that, I lived in Mission Hills, and that was in Mission Valley, so it was like a seven-minute ride. And I got a call, so, oh, David, sorry, the deal's off. And I just laughed, like, yeah, right, I'll be there in like five minutes. And they said, no, seriously, the deal's off. We fired all the VPs, and there was just someone was buying the paper. So my deal fell through, and I, you know, I had not hired certain people. I didn't put money yeah. into a website because they had everything. They had everything that I thought I needed, writers, publishers, editors, a web team, Sign on San Diego was their digital realm mm-hmm. at the time. So I went home <laughs> and just sat there in shock. And I mean, it, maybe it was a year of planning for this. And it was finally my escape. Um, anyway, didn't happen. Four years later, as I just, I felt like I, I was just overworked and couldn't escape that. Um, I called the guy who was in charge of the paper, who I'm friendly with today, uh, Jeff Light. He's the editor and publisher of the Union Tribune. And at the time it was owned by Tribune Publishing. So it's like LA Times, Chicago Tribune. Mm. Anyway, I said, look, I'm gonna tell you the story about what happened four years ago. And it fell apart last minute. And he said, yeah, I know. I'm the one who voted against it last minute. We had too much going on. I'm like, holy shit, Wow, what an asshole. But anyway, <laughs> um, six months later, I, so we met. He said, you seem like a nice guy, let's go to lunch next week with this other guy who would help make these acquisition acquisition decisions for the company. And he said, you know, we, your brand was cool. The company made some money. But now that we've met you, we realize what, we, what we'd like to have here is you. Yeah. And it wasn't for the reason, it wasn't for the things I thought I was good at. Overseeing a magazine, writing all this. They wanted me to help bring in revenue and new revenue streams and figure out new ways to empower their salespeople to go out and actually sell things. Um, so anyway. Did you know that at the time? Yeah, it was very clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about the different things. You know, I would go there and um, hand off Pacific to the big boys and girls who knew how to run magazines easily because they'd done newspaper and 
all these things for you know hundreds of years. So at the time it was, you know, Tribune Publishing bought my company, um, and that you know, to this day feels super cool. You know, it started as print only, direct mail, Pacific Beach magazine, uh, and then ended up being by the time you sold it, it as print, you know, email, online, social, street team, mm-hmm. and events, and it was cool. I got a story in the newspaper about mm-hmm. it. You know, so that was after the you met with. The new, the new owner. Well, actually, so uh, it was the same editor in chief, this guy Jeff Light, um, and yeah, Papa Doug had been gone, mm-hmm. and it was Tribune Publishing. The Union Tribune bought it. Okay, but you know, my resume. And you said you brought tri- another guy who was part of like the acquisition or those type of. Oh, things. he um, he was sort of my chaperone through the process. Gotcha. So that was a six month process of you know figuring out. Um, what was my company worth? What debt or lawsuits there were, which there wasn't any. Um, that was six. So you, you that met took with, six months. Met with Jeff, and six months from then was when the acquisition um, was complete. Oh wow! Yeah, so it was quick. Uh, so I met him a few weeks later. I said, "Yeah, let's try to get this done." And then, actually, on the eve of it happening, it was um, deja vu, but whatever the worst version of that is. That literally about a week before we were to close. I got a call from the guy who I had worked with on this, Robert York, and he said, David, I'm sorry, it's not looking good. All of a sudden, it looks like our company's for sale. And I just, like, I felt sick. I got, you know, it gave me the chills even just saying it now. Like, Holy shit. And, I, but anyway, it, it went through. Thank how God. much different was the deal, since it was four years later, and obviously Pacific grew in those four years, how much different was the deal from when you sat down with Doug to when it, it got into Jeff's hands? The first one would have been better for me. Really? Yeah, because even though the company grew, there was a different person looking at the numbers, mm. um, which was just, just how it went. You know, the first yeah, guy yeah. was like, he was a billionaire. He was going to write a check. The next guy wanted some more performance and, you know, smaller check and more for performance. So I was tied into the sort of performance deal for a few years where I could leave at any time, but I would have lost a lot of the money that was coming to me. Gotcha. Were you were you losing um, in the second deal? Were you losing a lot of control uh, as far as the direction of the brand, the way it was going to be headed, or the way it was going to be used and portrayed um, by Tribune? Yes, instantaneously yeah. it became. Well, initially, it was the same because I was still working mm-hmm. on it. And they said, "Well, this person will be your editor now." I said, "Whoa, how how's that going to work?" Yeah, I mean that, that's got to yeah. be shocking for you, especially after having heard you say, you know how. You wanted to be perfect. You wanted every issue to be perfect. Right. So, <laughs> how's that feel yeah. having to hand over so much control I, I over was, your baby, essentially? Well, so a lot of people ask me that. You know, what's it like to relinquish your baby? But it was never my baby. It was mm-hmm. this thing I started for money. I was beyond tired of it. I got what I wanted out of it. And and once that sale happened, what I really would have preferred was never to have touched it again. Mm-hmm. That's what I asked for. I said, no, you're gonna. It'll take six months, but then you'll be away from it. But it was um, the guy who I, well, I'll come back to that, but it was sort of a tumultuous time. Um, they plugged an editor into it. And finally, I felt like I had an audience where I said, look, this is not going to work. It's not been, whatever you think that was my history was with firing editors. This one's not going to work out. Here's the problems. And they agreed. And I felt like that was a win. But then the work fell back to me um, again. And that was just sort of a difficult handoff. The reason that the deal was so appealing for both sides was they had 40 salespeople and the promise was they would each sell maybe 1,500 
bucks a month into this publication, there'd be 60 grand and that was going to make an impact. But that it just never materialized that way. They were all selling other things like newspaper, internet, programmatic, all the modern things that if you're going to make a sale, you might as well sell something more expensive than a $2,000 page in a magazine. When you can sell a $12,000 page in a newspaper. They're cheaper now. <laughs> um, so the handoff was difficult. Um, in fact, it's, you know, ultimately, I didn't want to be the only one selling, but no one else was. Um, and then what I, what I wanted to do, what they brought me there for, is I was supposed to hand off the magazine to their publishers, editors, writers, everything they had. And then I was going to develop these new projects. And I had, and I did that. And they would occasionally, um, you know, I would get green-lighted on these big projects. And I had, pretty, I had a good title. I was pretty high up the hierarchy at this big media company. And I would present these projects based on their cost and staffing structure that I knew would work. And they said, well, that's great. We definitely will have you do that first fix Pacific. And I felt at times, and I expressed this to them, that, you know, someone shit on the floor and they put my nose in it. Like, and I was like, well, you guys shit on the floor. I didn't, you know, this wasn't yeah. me. This was working when I got here. And um, we were definitely at odds. Um, my first day, I think, at, the, at that job, Jeff walked me around, introduced me to people. I said, well, this is the guy you'll be reporting to, Paul engineering who's a friend of mine um but we we had definitely a tumultuous relationship because he hadn't known i was coming he hadn't asked for this line item on his billing he, he was this he is now the vp of sales and marketing for the union tribune and the la times and not just the paper but everything related to that they have you know the biggest website in the county maybe in here maybe in la too i'm not sure um so he hadn't seen me coming and when I got there, all of a sudden, I'm this new, I'm a problem for him because there's a line item that was revenue positive, you know, was profitable. But at the end of that year, it, it had the potential to tail off and become, you know, a red line on his budget. And it, and it did get there and stayed there. So um, that was really hard for me to watch, but I learned so much from it. Um, and now he and I are friends again. Now with my new job, I'm actually buying newspaper so it's pretty cool how it comes full circle that way huh so it was how long were you did you actually work there two years two years and it was, and it was supposed to be six months it was supposed to be three years oh okay um i it was a three-year earnout where i was mm -hmm. going to get a percentage of revenue well i did get the percentage of revenue even after i left mm -hmm. now it's over that was a sad moment i got my last check in june of 2000 of this year oh, okay um uh, but it was an amic. I don't know if it was an amicable break. I left. I I, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't like what I was doing there, and um, but now we're all friendly again and, and excited to do work together. Mm. All in all, if you could, and there's never any like go backs or regrets. Was is there anything going back you would have done different? Well, most of it, I think. <laughs> uh, I think um, you know, I, Just, I didn't. I, I didn't, didn't have to exit. sell the company. Yeah, I didn't have to sell it. I just didn't know that. I, I didn't know that until I learned what I did in the process. So I guess here, what I learned was I thought that I was selling my company to escape the work. Well, I was just selling to escape the work and get the money that I was going to get. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that as soon as I sold it, people said, oh, holy shit, you sold a company. That's amazing. And then they were, you know, how'd you do that? And all of a sudden I realized that it wasn't so much 
the fact that I had had a company that I operated, but the fact that I sold it that was interesting to people. Um, so I derived these benefits from it that I hadn't anticipated. Sure. Where all of a sudden, you know, I sold a media company, and as much, you know, I, I wish I had gotten more money and learned more along, you know, and figured out how to stay there or never sell in the first place, whatever. But now, um, that turns out to have been a very valuable thing for mm. me, ego-wise, mm-hmm. as much as anything else. Definitely. So, what was the your first day or first week out of the Tribune, out of the job? I mean, that that was truly when it was it was behind you. Yeah, I uh, I remember riding the elevator down um, from that job and thinking that where I was headed, even if it wasn't going to turn into anything, it was better than where I was. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because of the people that I worked with or for. It was because I was still stuck in the same exact paradigm. And it felt like since mm-hmm. I started this thing by accident when I was 35 and now it was 12 years later, whatever, more than that, Um I never, you know, I just, I didn't know how badly I needed to get away. Selling it didn't get me away from anything. It just moved the problems to another location. But actually leaving was the uh, the restart of my life that I needed so critically and didn't know. And literally, as I was going down the elevator, I was saying, even if I'm broke after this and I, I can't figure out how to make ends meet, this is the right move. And yeah, I knew yeah. without question that it was. Yeah, I think that's why when you said when you walked in, because I we had lunch, it had to be close to when you were on the on your last day or last week at the Tribune. And it was just one of those things that you pick up on, you can you could you could sense. And I mean, eventually I, I think our lunch turned much longer than planned. Um, and you're kind of telling me about uh, what we were your exit plan was and going on to. But I never really like from now from then till now, um, touch base much when when you left the tribune just to hear and i know i definitely want to touch on where you're at now which is a a really cool position that i know i we've already started working a little bit closer and and talking more closely with our with our team but from from where you are now to leaving the tribune how was that you know figuring out what this was your identity for 12 years like what was that time what did that time look like uh so there, there was a little extra there's a moment in there that so i I left the union tribune for a job Mm -hmm. the same guy um dan caulfield and you know he wants to hear his name and i like saying it but he's the guy who almost helped me almost sell my company you know years prior the guy who had sold discover sd um he called me one day because we're friendly and in touch and he's a business coach and great at it and he said i have a job for you and you're going to want this job and you're going to have this job in three weeks i said yeah right and I was making good money at the Union Tribune. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't imagine how I could leave. Um, anyway, he introduced me to this guy who had an ad agency that I was, who had just sold another company mm-hmm. and was not feeling like he needed to go to work at this ad agency anymore. So I was going to be um, VP of strategy, which was basically the, the owner left and I sat in his desk and I was going to be overseeing client development and sales strategy. And it was this another deja vu where literally the day before when I got there, the guy I found out that the person who was just elevated the CEO, the day before he had the job that title that I now had. And then when I got there, I'm sitting at the owner's desk and he didn't know I was coming. He said, who's this fucking guy? You know, and I'm sitting there and he, he doesn't, you know, I was supposed to bring in, I got the job saying I, the clients I thought I could bring in were Saquon, 
Gas Lamp Quarter Association, Port of San Diego, and uh, Cone Restaurant Group. I was sure I could get these things. Mm-hmm. Didn't turn out to be true, but the, you know. <laughs> but um, anyway, I was at that job for four months, and it just never was going to work out because uh, it just couldn't have worked out mm-hmm. because the guy uh, who I'm friendly with now, but wasn't, and whatever. It's just this difficult sure, time yeah. where he didn't know I was coming. And I, I, it happened to me sort of, you know, I put myself in the position a second time where um, the person in charge and I had, were like-minded. And I even, that time I thought to ask, is there someone who wouldn't want me here? Mm. Because I learned that lesson. Yeah, yeah. And so, well, maybe Carrie, but don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. But it turned out to be a big problem because he was the <laughs> CEO. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm getting paid this fat salary that I never really could have lived up to as just a sales guy, mm-hmm. which is what I became. Um, so I left that, uh, it was there to, I mean, whatever, it's a mutual decision, but sure, I, yeah. I left and that was right around Christmas. And I, um, I was sure that after all these years of work and creating a name for myself and selling my company that I'll just go start in a consultancy agency, whatever it is. And I was going to go after these four key players. One was, uh, Cone Restaurant Group, mm-hmm. and I'm friendly with David Cohn, who owns it. And he said, I'm staffed up and don't need your help. Thank you. So I was like, okay, that's a problem. Uh, Saquon had ultimately, they liked the I'm friendly with the guy who runs marketing there. We were going to do some programmatic media buying for them through the agency. But once I left, I didn't really have that capability anymore. If sure, I'd run yeah. it through the Union Tribune, the rates were too high uh, to add my commissions also. Um, what was another one? Oh, so uh, Port of San Diego yeah. actually hired me, even though it was just me. Uh, I wish I had brought my recommendation letter. The, the woman uh, in charge of marketing there, at least the one I interact with, uh, wrote a glowing letter about the work that I'd done with her in the past. And then, so anyway, I have this ongoing project, which you know I'm, I'm allowed to have in addition to my job where mm-hmm. I, I do work for the port. I'm, um, you know, Perloff Consulting is an agency of record for the port to help with some uh, consumer outreach projects and digital. And um, so that was cool. Anyway, while I was at this agency in Carlsbad called Elevated, we pitched the Gaslamp Quarter Association uh, on a website redevelopment project. And we would have gotten that, but ultimately I left that. I left the agency. And so my, you know, that was going to be my fourth client, Gaslamp Quarter. And he said, Michael Trimble, my boss and friend now said, well, we'll hire you, but you're going to have to come work here. So it's a job. You're not going to be our agency. Um, so as much as going to that, that agency for a short time and being relieved of duty was uh, just felt awful in so many ways. Without that position, I never could have gotten to the one now that I have, yeah. which feels like the perfect spot for me. That's so it's great. an incredible, you know, to, to look back, um, a friend of mine, Matt um, Green, recently made me watch it or showed me a video of Steve Jobs, some commencement speech he made, where he said, uh, the point that I took from it is it's easier to connect the dots of your life looking backwards than forwards. When I was at the Union Tribune, I, I felt miserable. When I was at this agency just making cold calls and then being basically fired right before Christmas, well, um, it felt awful. Yeah. But if those things hadn't happened, I could not, I just would not have gotten to where I am, which really feels like the perfect spot. I mean, ultimately, I have clients not so different from Margarita Rocks, 
mm-hmm. but I'm buying media from the Union Tribune and not from like one of their reps, but straight from the this, the VP that I worked for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm helping other media companies um, find uh, other publishing companies find their digital media agencies because they didn't have one in certain cases. So even uh, like Gaslamp Quarter Association, which is where I work now, we hired Elevated, the agency that I left, to help with our web redevelopment. Oh wow! So it all it really has come together in ways that I couldn't have predicted, and it just feels perfect. Yeah, definitely. You know? And uh, the the Gaslamp Quarter Association, obviously, we're really familiar with it. If you could sum it up for um, people listening who who aren't, what is like the main the core of the, the GQA? Yeah, uh, it exists. There's 19 business improvement districts in the county. Discover Pacific Beach, Little Italy Association, Gaslamp Quarter Association is one. So the member, the businesses that exist within our geography, which is basically fourth to sixth and Broadway to L, mm-hmm. um, we get a small percentage of tax revenue from them, some grants from the city, and some other funding from parking meters and parking lots. But the organiz- organization exists to support those businesses by making the neighborhood a better place to visit and making sure that people come and spend money within those businesses. Really cool. And your, I know the last time we had lunch and you, you were kind of, you were just getting started or settled in at the role. You're definitely the guy behind almost like even giving a little bit of a facelift to the GQA brand itself too. And to anybody who's outside of San Diego looking in and, and goes and visits the GQA social or site just to kind of see a little bit more, um, vibrant, a better display of what's in the gas lamp quarter, right? Uh, that's uh, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're there yet, and that's certainly what I'm working on. The I think when people come, when people visit here, whether it's a convention or from a cruise ship or just tourists in general, um, and they hear about the gas, they come to the gas lamp if they want food and drink and partying, sort of like the French Quarter sure, in yeah. um, New Orleans. And But for locals these days, it feels... I'm, I feel uh, almost everyone I talk to, if you say you want to go to the gas lamp, the answer is no. And there is sort of a locally anyway, negative view of the gas lamp. But if you talk about, do you want to go to Pendry or Oxford social club or sunburn or these different things that people do want to go to the answer is yes. That's Mm -hmm. where the great, all the great stuff's happening here. So it's not, uh, so my focus or my um, plan is to focus on the businesses that we're here to support because that's really the draw, not the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stop talking about the gas lamp, not to you know really just divert people's attention to the reasons to come here, mm-hmm. which isn't the neighborhood itself. And I think if we do that over time and highlight the restaurants and the bars and the businesses and the hotels and all the real reasons to be here, that over time um, it'll have that the effect of making people want to come to the gas lamp. Totally agree. Um, I think we're going to probably work in, in tandem with some of that stuff, but uh, excited that you're, that you're behind the wheel on that. So um, I know we're also narrowing down time, so we definitely wanted to, to slide in. One of the last questions that we try to segue out with is uh, for anybody watching who's, who might be in the like beginning in the weed phase of their life, the you know pre-San Diego days, the building the magazine days, what one piece of advice would you give them to kind of, you know, keep their head above water um, and going forward? I, I can tell you that um, the thing that's made the biggest change in my life, and I'm not sure if I can really recommend this for someone else. So mm-hmm. it's maybe not a great answer to your question, but 
I never really wanted to have kids. Mm. Uh, and then we had one, and it turned out to be the best thing I ever did in my life by a long shot. Um, recently, when I started to feel the stress relating to leaving the Union Tribune and then that agency job, I sort of took this mechanical approach to life for the first time in forever and got started getting up earlier, eating better, exercising in the morning every day before mm -hmm. everything else happens. And I feel like that has been just such a huge change in my outlook. It makes me eat better. And in a day that maybe not every day is great, but I always had that good part of my day. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really focusing on, and, and it was impossible for me to do at the time, so I can't give it as a, advice really, you know, focus on other parts of your life. But mm -hmm. when I actually was able to start doing that, everything got better. When I focus on my child, it puts work into perspective. It doesn't mean I need to earn less, but it somehow makes me more focused when I'm working on work. Mm. Uh, but you know, making the physical changes in my life, forcing myself to get up earlier and exercise in the morning, it seems like it really changed my life this past year. I, I totally agree. It probably, I don't know if you've done this, and then when you have like a, a few day, uh, a few consecutive days or a week where you don't, you definitely feel it now. Yeah. And you think you're like, how the hell did I do that before? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I the thing, when just being around bars, I mean, the amount of chicken fingers and Mai Tais I've eaten is just <laughs> un, unimaginable. My Back to the radio world, my first, so I made $2,000 a month to operate, you know, PB Bar Grill and Johnny V or to help them with advertising the radio station. But they also gave me like $400 a week in gift certificates that I was supposed to bring friends and seriously, like it was Mai Tais and chicken strips and ranch <laughs> in my 20s like that's what i ate and if there was salad on the side it was just you know i never would touch it <laughs> and um oh man so i don't know I, I don't know what advice to give people i um for me the best things that have happened is you know getting married and having a child and uh taking care of myself and the other things you know without without those things um having started and sold a company i think would be lonely and meaningless totally i think that's a great answer uh, this perfect is, this is the, this is the, this is the vehicle man yeah. this is the vehicle if it's not yeah. well oiled and gassed up we're not going to get anywhere or yeah. at least not at your speed you've kept so um that was great um this was fun nice cool thanks again for making the time i know you got a busy day yeah. um, i feel like i'm usually funnier and more charming maybe we'll do it again over a drink or something <laughs> <laughs> he, he, before we set up this time because i told him we usually do morning podcasts he, he said my vision for this podcast though i I feel like it should be like a five or six o'clock happy hour time and we should each have a cocktail have in a our hand. <laughs> and I said, I'm like, you might be on to something, um, but that might be round two. We'll, we'll, do yeah. a, we'll do a live podcast next time from Margarita Fest. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> well, well, we just had, we just had uh, two episodes ago, um, Jimmy, who one of the businesses he owns is Resident Brewing. Hmm. And I said to them, like, kind of, I was going to get a six pack of their beer, but again, it was a 10 a.m. podcast. <laughs> And I could see that thing spiraling next to me. You know, we're walking out of here at 11 or 12 in the morning or afternoon. Jumping on scooters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, case in point, next one, we'll do afternoon, evening, and have a drink. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Cool, man. guys. Thanks Thank a lot. I hope, that went, I hope you got what you wanted for. We and did. I hope I like what I saw like when it's done. It's not like a long shot. <laughs>